Good morning. My name is Lanier Wood. My, my family and I are glad to be with you this morning. It's one of the privileges of my calling as a RUF campus minister is that I have the opportunity to go around in different times and visit different churches. And what's neat to see as I get to do this is to see the uniqueness of Christ's body and the gathering of God's people. And I seek to bring that encouragement to you, that it's, it's a great privilege and a great encouragement to see you gathering here. It's also, I don't always get to do this, but bring my family with me. I love my children being able to see Christ's church as they worship and as they celebrate, as they look to their King. Well, this semester, one of the things we do, and, and RUF holds firmly to is in our mission and in what we're doing with students, is that we, we bring students to the Word of God. Uh, we're not just teaching them the right things to do, but we're opening up God's Word. And one of the things I tell them is that we don't open it up to, to get what we're already looking for. We open it up and we say, God, what are you teaching us? You know, the way that we read God's Word, sometimes, at least I fall into, is we ask the question, we're, we are asking the questions, and yet God's Word shapes our questions for us, informs us of the things that we're searching for. And so I work that through. We, we open up God's Word with that intention. And we've been studying the Psalms this past semester with students at South Alabama and, and, you know, what's interesting is that the psalms, kind of like churches, they're different. Every psalm is different. There's, there's, something, else, there's something going on. Uh, and yet, there's a common thread that holds all the psalms together. Israel probably didn't see it. It's actually the same thread that holds all the church together as well. And it's this hope and it's this expectation and this, this faith and rest in the coming Redeemer. Is Christ. This morning as we look at Psalm 110, this psalm of all psalms makes it most evident. David, in the, in the first verse, this is a psalm of David, in the first verse he says, my Lord, speaking of Yahweh, his God in heaven, speaks to my Lord that the king has a Lord that he is looking to. It is Christ. Jesus, he addresses this in his own ministry. It's Quoted actually, this psalm's quoted more than any other psalm in the New Te- in the New Testament. Jesus, in, in chapter twelve of Mark, he actually in, in discussing with the Pharisees who he is, he tells them, "Who do you think David was talking about when he said he had a Lord? He was talking about me." The psalm, when we open it up, it's a psalm about Christ. And yet, as the people of Israel, as, as they were reading it, as they would have heard it, as they would have sung it. These questions would have been in their mind. I got these questions from, there's a commentator, Derek Kidner. They're asking this question, whether the perfect king, this king that David is looking towards, is someone to come, or is he simply the present ruler idealized? Whether he would be one who would be merely a man at his best, or whether he would be something more than this. And as David wrote this psalm for the people of Israel, as he wrote it for us, he tells us, who this Christ is. That He is something more. He is not the present realities becoming just better and better slowly. He's not David the King finally fulfilling every expectation. There is a King to come. It is not David. And He would be much, much more than man. These are the things I want you to keep in your mind as we read Psalm 110. That this is a psalm that it clearly, it draws us to our Savior. It draws us to our King. It draws us to our priest, Christ. 
So let me read. The Lord says to my Lord. You'll notice wherever there's a Lord capitalized, there's a distinction here of different Lords. The Lord capitalizes God, Yahweh. The lowercase is this Lord who is Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your peoples will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn. He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the king on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter cheese through the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's come again to God as we hear his word preached. Lord, to open your word and to see your glory is almost too much for us. Lord, for when we look deeply upon who you are, it forces us to see deeply who we are. But Jesus, there is more in your sovereign power, there is more in your sovereign grace and your sovereign rule to offer us than just power. There is grace and there is redemption. So this morning we seek to know you We seek to know your power which is demonstrated in overcoming sin and undoing all righteousness by both bringing it to judgment and bringing us to grace. O Christ, as we see you, that you have been at work through all history, that the expectation, the longing, the hope of all your people's Christians, both in Israel and now, that we were looking forward and we look back and we look ahead again to you, our King, who reigns and rules and is redeeming. Open your word to let us see your eyes, to let our eyes see you, rather. And by your Spirit, Lord, work work your word more deeply into our hearts. We ask this in Christ, our mediator's name, Amen. Well, you notice the, the title of uh, the sermon that I gave to Tim was, it's not, a, it's not something you usually come to hear uh, either speeches or sermons about. You're not a winner. You know, when we go to a lot of uh, uh, speeches, a lot of motivational speaking, we... That's what we're going to hear. We're going to hear how we can put our lives back together. How we can triumph. How we can conquer. How we can rule. And yet this psalm is not about us as that. In fact, it comes from the opposite reality. That we are not. But that Christ is. 
I've been reading The Hobbit with my daughter, and we're about to read, we've been reading some of the kind of classics, and we're about to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she's excited about that, because as I told her about it, it's a book that has kings and queens, and, and animals and lions. And she's looking forward to it. And if, if any of you are familiar with the story, it's C.S. Lewis's, it's his fiction writing, and it's an allegory of the kingdom of God. In the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what happens is as these children enter into this world of Narnia, there are these children coming from England who enter into the world of Narnia, they find that the world of Narnia is being reigned by this white queen, this white, uh, the white witch. And the white witch, is, she's demonstrated great power. She's, the land has been subdued. The land is frozen over by her magic and by, her, by the things that she has done. And yet the story, it hangs on this hope, especially as the children come back, that there are these people in Narnia, there are these animals, these different creatures, that have been resting on a promise. They've been looking for the high king and the high queen to come back. They've been looking for this one who's Aslan to come and rule over the white witch. But in the meantime, everybody's making choices. Everybody's making choices, and some of the creatures, in their desperation, they say, I will go to the White Witch. I'm going to follow her plan. She offers me something now. Edmund, one of the children who enters into the story, she decides, he decides to follow the White Witch. Entices him with this treat, Turkish delight, his most favorite special thing, and she can offer it to him now. But there are other creatures, they remember the promise even in the desperation, even in the powers that are over Narnia, and they look to it. And they still follow the king, even though they don't know him. Even though they haven't seen him. Even though they haven't walked with him. This is the picture of Israel. This is what Israel, through its struggles, through its desires, they're looking forward to the king who will redeem, who will make Israel a great nation. And yet, at times, even as David rules, the land is in turmoil, it is in tumult. There's times of slavery, there's times of exile, there's times where they're cast out. And Israel has a choice. Will we rest? Will we look in the promises of God? Will we look in this king to come or will we, in, or will we serve the kings of our present age? You see, the question for us, and it's actually the same for the people of God now because we both look back to what God has done and we look forward to the promises. Will we follow the king who has gone before us? Will we follow the high king? Or will we follow the kings of our present age? This is our challenge this morning. As we look at this psalm, I think this psalm it's written to encourage us, to remind us of who this king is, to bring us into a celebration of it. You know, and students, when they come to South, I see them intentionally having to make this decision. Will I follow the king? Many of them raised in the church. Will I follow the king I know and the king who has offered to me salvation and hope and rest? Will I follow the kings around me? Will I follow the offerings around me? Y'all, this is a choice we make each day. Will we follow Christ? Will we follow the one who redeems? Will we follow the one who goes before us? Or will we seek to fight in our own merit? Will we seek the things that the world offers? 
See, here's what we see. The Lord, the Lord is David's Lord. And he is the Lord of kings. He's the Lord of king, queens. He's the Lord of presidents. He is Lord over all. He is the Lord of all, Lord of all lords. And what we do is what we already see in verse 3. The way that the people respond, they follow the king freely. They follow the king freely. This is what we see. The first reality is that we have a high king. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, there are two, there are two questions, or there is actually a handful of questions talking about who Christ is and his different offices, the way that he functions. One of them was in your bulletin for reflection before the sermon that Christ is our high priest. We see that actually in the psalm. But we, we see too that he is our high king, that he is one who rules and redeems, who, who wars for us. The, the Shorter Catechism says he rules and defends us. He subdues and leads us and he conquers all his and our enemies. This is what the high king does. The first verse, this is what you see. The Lord says to my Lord, what does this God say, God say to this Lord? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This king is one who already, as he reigns, he reigns from the throne of heaven. We already see this king is different. David mediated the kingdom of God here on earth, and yet this king sits at the right hand of God. You notice it too, the language, as it says that he sits at the right hand of God. He sits. He's a king who in some ways, his power and the things that he is doing they're established, they're sure, they're, they're assured of. That's what you do when you, you sit after a battle, you sit and you rest. The things that this king brings, the thing that this high king brings, they're almost done already because the power and the work of this king is so sure. And what does he sit? He sits till, it's interesting, he says, he sits till I may, until I make your enemies your footstool. So this king the work is done, and yet at the same time, there's something still that he is going out to do. There's the assurance that while Christ's work is, is, is already done, he is working out those things in our lives, right? That he's a king who rules, he's a king who reigns from heaven, and yet he's a king who continues to go out. And we see these things, though, in light of this specific reality that he's not just any king Jesus wasn't just, again, the exemplary king. He wasn't just the one who did all things right. But in verse 2, you see that the Lord, he sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This king goes out with the authority, with the power, with the scepter, bearing the image of God's power, the scepter, the, the reality that where he goes, God goes with him. Where he goes, he takes the power and the authority of God. You think back the story in, in, in Exodus when Joseph, when he rises to the, the, upper, the upper house of Pharaoh, Pharaoh does something similar. He gives Joseph his signet ring. And the, re, the idea is that as Joseph has his signet ring, he bears the decisive power, whatever he does, takes the authority of Pharaoh with him. This is the same thing, that, but not just for Pharaoh, but for God. This one, he goes with the scepter of God. In fact, you might say he is the scepter of God. He is the authority of God. He is the work of God. He is what God is doing. You see, this all comes to underline who this person is. It comes to underline who the person of Christ is, that he's a king with the authority of God. And here's what 
we do with kings. A king requires devotion. You devote yourself to a king. You know, we're not used to seeing the world in this way, certainly. But a king is one you follow. You are his, actually. You're his possession. And you follow and you serve that king. The, the king blesses you. The things you have, is, and this is what we see as we're God's people, is that the things we have are because of this king, because he has made them available to us. And so our responsibility with our lives and with those things is to serve the king, to follow the king and his mission. We are the kings. All we have comes from him. You know, this is a hard reality for us in our present age because we are, we are taught individualism as young children. And this is not really just generational. This is not really just uh, post-enlightenment or because of post-modernism. This is the reality of what we learn as little children, that we are the most important thing to us. And so when we hear and we see that there's a king who calls us into service to him that actually has some sense of real ownership of us, this is difficult. And yet scripture is wise, as we shouldn't be surprised of. Because the Bible actually tells us that we're deceived if we don't think that we're not servant to something. Think of Romans 6 where, where Paul addressing the Romans, telling them what it means to walk walk with God and know the hope of their salvation. He says, listen, you are slaves to something. You're either slaves to unrighteousness or slaves to righteousness. Slaves to the things of this world, slaves to what you can offer or slaves to God. And the distinction is, is that the slave of unrighteousness, his life leads to destruction. He leads to the thing that unrighteousness, unholiness, that brokenness, that evil lead to, to destruction. But the slave of righteousness, the one who follows God, the one who walks with God, he's led to life. This is what our king does. He is not just a king with power. He's a king who loves and cares deeply for his people. He's a king who goes before and for us into the world. He's a king who wars for us and he brings life. And so the question is, and we have to keep coming back to this, do, how, are you following this king? And I want to make this kind of distinction too, that we're not following the king to where we want him to lead. That's not what it means to follow a king. That's sometimes what we want, right? We want to follow Jesus where we want to get to. We want Jesus to take on our mission. But no, what it means to follow the king is that his mission is better and that we follow him in his work. That our lives begin to be shaped by him, begin to be shaped by his mission. And we begin to reevaluate on a regular basis, even as we, the people of God, sit here and follow him and worship this morning. We, on a daily basis, on a regular basis, encouraging one another, evaluate our lives. Are we following the king or are we following ourselves? Are we following his mission or are we trying to get him to come into ours? You see, we follow Jesus. That's what verse 3, it reminds us of in this reflection of what it is or how it is that we follow this king. Look what happens. The people, they offer themselves. Does it say under compulsion? No. Does it say under fear? 
Does it say under ambition? They offer themselves freely. They offer themselves freely. We, we freely follow God because we know that he is a king with power. We know that he is one who has even better than we have uh, our own interests in mind. We follow him freely. We follow him on the day of his power. It says in holy garments, that is, with works of righteousness. That's what that illustration is. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the earth will be yours. This is what this promise is. That the power of Christ is a refreshed power. The dew of the morning, that, that dew that first rises, it is a refreshed, it is a revived power. Uh, power. Think of your grass in the morning. It's always greenest. Right as the dew hits on it and the sun, and the sun rises, the grass is beautiful and is green. Such is the power of Christ. It's fresh and it's new. Always. But here's what makes this high king so beautiful to follow. It's, it's the second reality that he is also a high priest. It's a high priest. In verse 4 it says, The Lord has sworn. As David calls us to this uniqueness of this king in his priestly role, he says this, The Lord has sworn. As I was reading over this passage and doing some study, one commentator, he, he said, if there's anything stronger than a divine oracle, that is, of kind of a promise of the future, it's this, a divine oath by God. You see, when God makes promises, we need to listen. It's to call our attention to what, to what God is doing is not just sure and done. It, it is important, it is significant, and, and, and we need to pay attention. So he says, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind just to further add in case you didn't get it, in case we didn't understand. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We read Hebrews 7 to give us some understanding of this. Melchizedek, he was the king of Salem that Abraham goes before and, and God calls him to make these sacrifices. The king of Salem, Salem meaning the king of peace. That's what Salem meant. This king of peace who is both a king and a priest. One who both ruled and one who both made intercession before God. Christ stands in this reality. He is one who follows in the order of Melchizedek. He is both a king and he is a high priest. He is both one who rules and one who justifies. He is one who stands in the stead for his people in all ways. We have two children who y'all see up here. And, and one of the responsibilities that we've learned and that you have to take on as a parent is that you are a mediator. I mean, I remember the first time we had to sign our children's names for different documents. We make all kinds of decisions for our children. When we go to the doctor, we don't even just wait for, the, for them to tell the doctor where they hurt. We, we tell the doctor where they hurt. We tell the doctor what they need or how they've been feeling. We mediate for them at, at all times. We mediate, to, we mediate in prayer also with God. We pray for our children. This is what mediation does. One stands in the stead, brings the hopes or the needs of one before others. And that's what Christ does, both in his kingly role and in his priestly role. He is one who mediates. But here's the thing, here's the distinction that we see as, as these things fill out. A king, his responsibility is to mediate between his people 
primarily, and the peoples around. Now, this king, David, was given a role by God, but his primary role is to mediate with his people, that is, to speak for them, to act for them, to make decisions for them, to go to war on their behalf, and protections of, and, and work things out with other people. But a priest's role is different in mediation. A priest's role is, is focused, and it's unique. The role of a priest was that he stood before God. The role of a priest was one who, who stood in the middle of the people of God and, and, and God himself, and would go and offer and make sacrifices for the people of God so that the people had access to God. And yet we see in Hebrews 7 the limitation of of this reality is that the priests of the Old Testament, first of all, they weren't pure in themselves. The rites of purification uh, for the sins and the, the atonement of the people of God actually were preceded by the rites of purification for the priests themselves. That for the priests to come before, they had to make specific sacrifices. They weren't a priest who could do their job perfectly. They weren't priests without sin, without stain, without blemish. But not only that, but they had to keep doing it over and over and over. Yet historically, this might be why the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, doesn't do that anymore because it it seems tiring. And yet those realities that were happening in Israel were pointing towards heavenly realities, the realities that David calls us to see now is that there is a high priest. There is one who came to make continual intercession always for the people of God, and that is Christ. And we see Jesus as our high king, the one who makes ultimate, uh, the one who has power, the one who reigns, the one who rules and has a good Work, we see that his justice and his power are tied together with this with his love and with his mercy and with his grace. That Christ has come as a king, but he's come as a priest to make intercession for his people. And don't pass over this. Hebrews, it draws us into this distinction between this king and other kings, and this priest and other priests is that this King Christ, this King Jesus, our Savior, He he is both eternal and He's effectual. That He does it forever, that His work goes on, that He sits and mediates before the throne of God, and yet it's once offered up and it's good. Are we following Jesus, our High Priest? What this means for us, we, we can understand a little bit how to follow a king in a, nat- in a natural sense, that if he's going where we want to go, we can follow him. But yet he is going to a place that's even better for us. But we also see, see this, and this is sometimes diff- more difficult to wrap our minds around, that we are following one who is a high priest. We are following one who lays down his life for us. We're following one he brings us to that thing that we ultimately need, which is access to God our Father. This is who this priest is. This is who this priest is forever, the one who is in the order of Melchizedek. 
what this means for us in practical ways is that we can be broken as a people of God. That we can walk into our sin boldly. That our lives don't have to look beautiful enough in order to offer them as living sacrifices. But that our lives are being made beautiful by Christ. That the church doesn't have to be perfect in all its work. We don't have to put on. We only have to put on Christ and go and labor in the world. Yeah, I speak, I, I talk in, in a lot of my one-on-ones, I talk about this, that the church, it's not always beautiful, and that's one of the complaints that I hear. And, and I tell them, you don't even know the half of it. But you also don't understand what Christ is for, because Christ didn't come to die for a beautiful church. He came to die to make the church beautiful. And Christ, our priest, that is what he does. He dies in order to make us beautiful. And now we follow in him. And I think the least we can do is follow him in his church and serving others and loving others and worshiping him in all of our brokenness, resting on Christ alone. I'll close with this. These last three verses, they tie together what it looks like for this king and this priest to work with God. It's heavy. It's weighty. The Lord is at your right hand. He he says it again. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. My grandfather, he fought in World War II. He was a B-17 pilot, and I remember him telling me stories as I was growing up. I'm really grateful that he told me the stories because I remember them. And I'm really grateful because, you know, sometimes as we talk about war and, and these things come up, you know, there's a, there's a school of education that, that says, well, maybe, maybe these things didn't have to be done. Maybe there are other ways. Maybe there are other ways to settle it. And yet as I hear his stories about World War II, it's this reality that there was no other way. And I ask him, you know, if he had fun, and because he was a pilot, he says yes. And yet, as I've seen him become more and more honest about this, both the reality that he had to go to war, but that it wasn't something that he was grateful for in the sense that he was glad that we had to. And what I mean is this. He knew this what we needed to do. And that's what's, that's what's necessary in order to conquer evil That is, in order to bring peace, we must actually war against evil. And what we see Christ doing here is that he's a king who brings peace, but he's a king who's ready for battle. He's a king who's ready for war. He will leave remnants of those things behind him in order to bring his people to their salvation. See, he isn't an idol or a peaceful king in that sense. He's a king of great power who will do the work necessary to bring his people to peace. So again, we see the two horizons of this psalm, that there is this immediate horizon 
that, that in Christ, in this one, this one who is the Lord of, of David, that we are looking forward to, there's one who is overcoming and conquering all people set against God. All doers of evil, all doers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear that, that's how I see myself. I am the doer of lawlessness. I am the doer of evil. As much as I care for and deeply love my children, I've seen that more than anything in that that relationship. And I hear these things, and I see this, and, and for me, it's crushing because who can stand with this king? Who is righteous enough to walk with this king in his battle, in his war? I think it's where we see the second horizon that the eyes of the people of God are lifted up. Because if we look throughout all Scripture, when we again focus our eyes on the work of Christ, and maybe even looking ahead to Romans 6, where Paul describes the kingdom as it comes in our lives. He says this, that the kingdom comes as we are put through death and resurrection. Jesus, he tells his disciples the same thing. If you die with me, you will be raised with me. And some picture of what Psalm 110 is telling us is that these corpses that fill the earth there is, they, they are the old man. They are the parts of me that are sin and brokenness. This brutal reality that, that Christ comes and that He conquers, these corpses are our old man. And that with them, the thing that He does, He brings us to life. Y'all, this is the King that we follow. This is the king that we worship. This is the king that we enter into his service, that we, that we bring into the world, that we tell our friends, that we share with those around us. One who has brought us to life. Y'all, we need to war with Jesus. And all this really means in some simple sense. So we begin to live our lives following his mission, but resting in his work, praying for his reign to lead before us, Praying boldly when we see that old man striving and wrestling. Jesus, subdue my sin. Give me grace. We remember as we sang, the mercy of God. Because here's the thing, with Jesus, as we go back to this, what Hebrews draws us to, it's as good as done. Verse 7, it's a verse of peace. He'll drink by the, book, by the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. At the end of the battle, things are done. Christ will dip his head in and he will show us our rest. So Hebrews 9, I love it how, how the Hebrews says it. He entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Let us rest, let us worship, let us be encouraged in that. Let's pray.